Yeah, I know, technically this one came out after Thor, but... I looked at both films, and the more I thought about it, the more I felt this order made more sense. Black Panther feels like Spider-Man feels like Guardians. It's setting up pieces for Infinity War. But Thor 3 directly leads into Infinity War. Like, Thor 3 ends, and then minutes later, Infinity War begins. It just felt like a more natural bridge. Especially since... <sighs> there has to be some kind of time gap in between the end of Black Panther and the beginning of Infinity War, because at least some of the technological revolution has at least been disseminated to Stark, and who knows who else, to help them get to the point where they can, you know, do the stuff they do in Infinity War. So, it makes more sense to do it in this order. I don't know if that was originally intended that way, but that is certainly how the chronology seems to line up. <clears throat> this film's creation is, uh, interesting and terrifying. People have done entire essays just on the making of Black Panther. And I don't mean this film, actually, as weird as that may sound. Uh, I mean everything going back to 1992. See, Wesley Snipes was really pushing for a Black Panther film. He actually got together a crew and they actually started pre-production work. This is around 96 at this point. It didn't go anywhere because um, everything fell apart. Basically, some of the people involved didn't even know who or what Black Panther was, and I thought they were talking about the Black Panther movement or whatever it's called, you know, the organization. And they were like, wait, what? We're doing a comic book film? And it was just a mess, and there were some financial issues, so that fell apart. And then it got shopped around, and Snipes never stopped pushing for it, right up until he went to jail. <laughs> it's for tax evasion. It's, it's you know, it's white-collar crime, but... Still, that kind of ended that. But what's funny is he was actually in the process of working with Marvel and still trying to push this right up until that event. Now, after he, you know, got out and, you know, went straight and all that fun stuff. Went straight. Tax evasion. After all, after all that, they were still wanting a Black Panther film. In fact, Feige has been trying to push for a Black Panther film since the beginning. There's a reason he references it all the way back in Iron Man 2. And, in fact, he's been trying to sow the seeds of this for some time. So, finally actually getting this sucker together, everyone's like, yeah, let's do it! Which brings me to an interesting comment. Did you know that Ryan Coogler, I'm probably saying that wrong, who is the director for this, this is his third film ever. Third major film, I should say. He's obviously done smaller scale stuff before that. <laughs> I'm telling you, those talent scouts, they know what they're doing. And one of his stipulations for coming in is he wanted to bring a lot of his crew in from, um, oh, I can't think of the name of the film all of a sudden. It's the other one Michael B. Jordan was in. <sighs> uh, hang on, I can look it up. I haven't seen it myself, but everyone who has seen it tells me it was really good, so I'm assuming they're right. Give me just a second. Here we go. Ryan Coogler did right before this. Creed! That was it. Creed. Which apparently came off really well. So, you know, go figure. I don't know. I didn't see it. Like I said. But it's obvious the man has talent, and this film goes to show it. He's already working on Black Panther 2, of course. Curious where they're going to go with that one. We've had so many status quo changes at this point. Jeez. Anyways. I actually don't have much to say else about the making of, except that... You can always tell when a film is made by people who know what they're doing. And what I mean by that is, obviously, one person can be talented or another person can be talented, but it's a totally different thing for a team to be talented. They have to have experience. They have to know how each other works. You know, good teamwork is, is obvious, in my opinion, every time you see it. And this film's crew, they're good. <laughs> they work well together, and it shows. So we get the backstory about Vibranium, which comes from space. That's an important story point, because it helps to establish that Vibranium does exist outside of Earth. It's probably pretty rare. We're not actually sure, though. In fact, they're very vague on how much Vibranium is off of Earth. Although, we do know that Thanos' sword in Endgame is Vibranium, or something like it. So, that's, that's about it. That's as far as that goes. We also find out that there's this herb and a panther which called him to take of the herb and become superhuman and... Okay, re rewind, rewind. Do you think this is magic? Because magic exists. I mean, we just saw Doctor Strange, for God's sakes. So it could be magic. Or it could just be vibranium. I mean, I, I, I hate to say it like that, but honestly, vibranium basically is magic. 
Like they they use vibranium to do everything. They use it as a power source. They use it as a conduit. They use it as an a generator. They use it as a projector. They use it as everything. Obviously, armor, weapons, base technology, interactability, long, infinite range communications. I mean, God sakes. So it could just be that what we're seeing is a flower that adapted. I guess evolved might actually be not a bad word here to actually contain the vibranium within it in a similar way to things like Phazon or Tiberium would be used in their respective settings. And so when you take of the flower, you're basically taking vibranium into your system in a processed format, and you're now part vibranium. That's my theory. I'll go ahead and admit it. But I'll get back to that point later. So right off the bat, we see James and... Well, excuse me, we see Zuri and uh, Ntabu. I have so many name guides. I hope I don't mess any of these up. Planning a prison breakout, by the way, for the mother. Now, that's actually a really tiny story point that's important because it helps to showcase where they were at at this point. Because that's Eric's mother, that they were going to go break out of prison. And they don't, so she dies in there. So, um... Anyways... There's, uh, they, 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 at the beginning, they try to establish a few things on the off chance that you didn't see Civil War. And I do have to showcase that Panther himself, T'Challa, which I'm probably going to call him more often than Black Panther, T'Challa manages to effortlessly take down a group with guns. They actually start shooting at him, and he's just like, yeah, okay. Are we done here? Come on, let's go, let's go. And with one exception, he effortlessly makes his way through everything. And the only thing he does is he freezes when he sees his one true love, Nakia. Which is where Okoye comes in. I'm going to warn you something. I'm going to gush about Okoye a lot, because she's probably my favorite character in this film. So just as a heads up. <clears throat> she comes in. You froze! I told you not to freeze! Um, <laughs> so this establishes him, establishes how he can work. And I have a note here. And I'm going to mention it here, and then I'm going to mention it again later. I never processed this before, but I think one of the many reasons why Black Panther succeeds as well as it does is because it focuses on an ensemble cast. <sighs> Let me try and explain that a little bit. Some games, shows, and, and movies have a decisive central character. And you could say a huge percentage of screen time, or page time, or whatever, is specifically devoted to that character, right? I'll use a video game example. In Final Fantasy VII, Cloud is clearly the main character. Whereas in Final Fantasy VI, who the main character is gets a lot more debatable because it's more focusing on a large group of people and thus the screen time passes around relatively equally. Just about all of the major characters all get roughly equivalent screen time, the only exception being the villain, but let's not get into that. That's more what Black Panther feels like, the second example. We have Okoye, we have Shuri, we have Umbaku. You know, we have bits with Zuri. Uh, we have, I wrote down her name, the mother. Oh, what's her name? They didn't say, Ramanda, that's it. They have Ramanda, T'Challa himself, of course. Did I say Nakia? I, I didn't say Nakia. Nakia and Ross, E-Ross, is how I keep writing it down because, well, we'll get to that. And that's in addition to two major villains. This is a fairly large cast movie, which I'm going to go ahead and admit something. I'm starting, I've been having a theory for a while that a lot of the Phase 3 films were proof of concepts for Infinity War. Because Infinity War has a cast of like 52 major characters, which is absolutely insane. Like, like even by, by any film history, in all of film history, that's nuts. And if you'll notice, a lot of the Phase 3 films kind of kept increasing and increasing the number of major characters that get a decent amount of screen time. And again, I feel, this is just my theory, I have nothing to, com to, to support this, but I feel that a lot of that was being pushed by the higher-ups, which at this point was basically just Feige, in order to try and be like, yeah, let's see if it works. Look, I mean, it's going to be more cast, and there's a lot more to keep track of, and the scripting's going to be harder, and the directing's going to be harder, more makeup work, more special effects work, and more expensive. But let's see if it works. And you'll notice it's been working out pretty well. And Black Panther sold really well. So, yeah. <clears throat> Although not as well as Infinity War and Endgame. Good God. Although we finally beat Avatar. Sorry, I'm still happy about that. That was months ago. Anyways. 
Back to Black Panther. Ensemble cast. I think that's a lot of why it succeeds, which leads us to Michael Jordan playing Eric. Now I'm mostly going to call him Eric because Killmonger's... Sure, whatever. <laughs> Who are you? I am the Death Doom. Yeah, okay, kid. No, Eric. <laughs> He's, uh... He does a really good job of this. Michael Jordan is a decent actor. I'm not, he's not the best actor I've ever seen, but he is a good actor. But almost everything I've seen him in is kind of like back in Creed. Now, I know I haven't seen Creed, but I've seen the kind of performance he puts there. He's a good guy. You know, he's, he's, he's affable. He's amicable. He's kind of nice and friendly. And what I really find amusing is Jordan really wanted to play a villain. This is something that's been on his list for a bit now. But he plays a villain like he does his other roles. And it adds a really weird dimension to him, because he's nice and affable and fun, right up until he gets up in your face and tells you he's about to kill you. He's also a straight-up psychopath. Not a sociopath, a psychopath. Eric is messed up in the head. And I suppose that makes sense for someone who calls himself Killmonger. <clears throat> but, yeah, he's, he's great. Which leads me to another person who's really great in this film. Andy Serkis. I said something back when this film came out. I don't, I don't remember if I said it during the discussion stream or not. Who knew Andy Serkis could act? Now, okay, that sounds like a horrible statement. But what I mean by that is Andy Serkis has taken motion acting to an art form. He's probably one of the... No, there's no problem. He is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, proponent for pushing motion, motion capture and motion acting, body language acting, into, into a new era, basically into a whole new science and a whole new craft, which he basically shoved forward as hard as he could. But I'll admit, I don't think I've ever seen him just straight up act before, but he does a really good job as Claw. I mean, he was good back in Ultron, but that was basically a cameo here. I'm going to save more of my thoughts on him for later, but I really do like how he comes across as someone who is completely on top of things at all times. There is never a moment in which he seems like he is, is surprised or caught unawares or not completely in control of the situation. Even when he dies, he's still doing that. I'm going to go ahead and admit something weird. Cloth, to me, feels like one of the deadliest non-supers in the MCU. Now, I'm counting, like, see people like Tony Stark as supers, but... Yeah... I would, I would put this guy up against Widow, you know what I mean? Anyways, <clears throat> so then we have the formal ceremony. This is good, because after all, Civil War, he wasn't really... I mean, he was technically king, he was the next in line, and he was technically the next Black Panther, but none of that was really confirmed. So now he has to confirm it. Okay, politics, I get it. We're cool, we're walking, we're walking. We also find out uh, the names of the tribes. This is actually interesting to me. We've got... The River Tribe, the Mining Tribe, the Border Tribe, the Merchant Tribe, and the Jabari. Now, already we can see the contrast, because the earlier tribes are named for their function in the Wakandan society, and the Jabari are named for, we're over there, screw you. But River Tribe, okay, you know, food production, that kind of thing, I'm with it. Uh, border Tribe, very important for how they police themselves. Merchant Tribe, probably internecine but I imagine they are also related to foreign affairs, and the mining tribe, who's probably the one in the most political position of affluence within them, because they're probably the ones in charge of the mountain. Quick aside, I do like how they make it clear that that mountain, it, it, it's a full-on mountain of vibranium. Huge! Like, they're, they've been digging into this thing for thousands of years, and they have barely scratched the surface of this thing. That's good, because... You know, I mean, this is, this is a valuable resource they're going to need a lot of coming soon. Anyways. So then they do the challenge. One quick aside. They, 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 I know this is going to sound like, but they pull a, oh god, I can't think what it's called all of a sudden. Oh my god, I can't think of the genre of the game. Like, Fortnite is a such-and-such such game. I can't think of the genre. Anyways, Battle Royale, is that it? Anyways, they pull that on them. Like, okay, you're here, and all of the people that try to start out here, and they have this slowly encroaching zone of danger, which is just fascinating to watch, because every time it moves in, they, they tighten the noose. And it's very clearly made to be part of the ritual combat. We also see this is the second time T'Challa's been challenged. He, has, he doesn't have his powers. Doesn't have a suit, doesn't have his anything, but we need to establish T'Challa, the character. 
So we are establishing his competency by him taking down M'Baku by himself with none of his advantages, which he does, and he spares M'Baku's life. With, you know, I love the way he does it, though. Your people still need you. Don't make me kill you. And he's like, okay, okay. All right, all right. Cool, we're cool. <sighs> okay, so he just, he's established himself. He's sworn in as king, so to speak. Shuri is amazing. I'll get to her later. Seriously, though, Shuri is probably my second favorite character in this film, which is a shame because I didn't quite like her in Infinity War, but I'll get there when we get there. So then he goes in and he is re-imbued with the power of the Black Panther, and he goes to the astral plane, maybe, or maybe it's just magic, or maybe he's just having a vibranium illusion. Uh, there's a lot of possibilities here. As always, I'm curious what you guys think. They're pretty vague here on purpose, and it's not like, as I said earlier, magic literally exists, the astral plane literally exists, souls are real things in this setting, so it's entirely possible he really is talking to the deceased souls of his ancestors. Or he's just having a vibranium hallucination. Or a combination of the two. Take your pick. But either way, we see the arc that T'Challa will be on right off the bat. You have a, you're a good man with a good heart, and it is difficult for a good man to be king. I've talked about this for years. I call it the paradox of leadership. The microscopic versus the macroscopic. But this then leads to a sequence of scenes. First with um, uh, Nakia, I think, right? Yes, first with Nakia, and then with... I didn't write his name down, did I? Bad guy. <laughs> oh God, I didn't write his name down. I'm sorry, one moment. Ah, it doesn't matter. I'm losing my groove. The Emperor's groove has been thrown off. I'm not the Emperor yet, don't worry. Whatever. Bad guy. Now, this is actually pretty important, because it helps to establish what is effectively a false dichotomy. First thing we see is, you know, we should, we should reach out, we should do, uh, we should give foreign aid, we should take our position in the world. And of course, the downside is that, well then Wakanda will just be like everywhere else. That then leads to bad guy, it, it's Okoye's husband, you know what I'm talking about. Anyways, who says, no, that's stupid and dumb. You know what we should do is we should take our forces and clean up the rest of the world. I think that'll work out pretty well. You'll notice that both are pushing T'Challa in a direction that does not include the way they've been and the way they have been done things all along, which is good because Thanos is coming, but you could see why, given the modern era and given how technology is moving and the world is moving forward and there's superheroes flying around, you can kind of see why this would be the time to be like, okay, we, guys, guys, hang we need to talk about this. We need to figure out what we're doing going forward. And so we have our two options. Do we go out as cleaners, conquerors, or do we reach out and basically open our borders to the enemy and just kind of be overwhelmed by a greedy and political world that just signed the so Sokovia Accords? Yeah. N not really good options there, are they? I really do like T'Challa and Shuri's chemistry, by the way. As I said before, I really like Shuri. Oh, this is also when I wrote down a note that I really love the soundtrack of this film. I know that's a weird thing to comment on, but it was... It was on point, obviously, but it was just good. Like, at every point, it was doing something to elevate the scene, and I just wanted to give special praise to that really quick. Just moving on. So, they find out about the nanotech, which is basically magic. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, but there's still things like mass. Like, okay, okay. So the entire suit can fit inside this necklace, which means the amount of mass in that necklace has to be spread across his whole body, which means each la that layer of a fabric has to basically be one, maybe two nanites thick. That, or, or, I mean, you get my point. It has to be really thin because there's only just, it's just mass. It's just straight mass. They don't have TARDIS technology yet. So <laughs> I look at that like, how does that even work? I know, I know. It's vibranium. It's magic. It's just, God, that's, that's one of the only bits of their super tech that bugs the crap out of me. Is that they've got the, his whole suit in a necklace. Come on. Anyways, I'm, I'm getting off topic. I'm getting off topic. This leads to a, a peek at the kind of spy network we have. Now, they actually say outright later, 
that they have spies in every major nation of the world. Which makes sense, actually. No, seriously. I don't remember what I was talking about recently. It was Deep Space Nine. Yep, I was talking about it in Deep Space Nine, which I think that episode might have gone live by now, given the timeline, I don't know. But I was talking about the value of spying on an ally, because you should, in my opinion, spy on an ally. Not with intent to usurp... Not to destroy, just just to keep abreast, to keep to make sure that you're keeping up on whatever's going on over there. If you catch something they don't, you can help them out. If they're doing something you don't approve of, you can try to deal with it privately or openly. But having that avenue of intel is it's critical, in my opinion. <laughs> right? I can't be the only one who thinks in this direction. I suppose because since this is actually the third time now I've talked about this concept. Point being, of course they have spies everywhere. And we kind of see a little bit of inference of exactly how far spread their network is. Now, <laughs> can I just say I really, really like the casino scene a lot? I don't even know where to start. First, there's Ross. Everett Ross, or Agent Ross, if you prefer. Now, this is where I had my note. I, I know he has a willingness to work with people rather than against them. He's actually extremely diplomatic right off the get-go. And I like that. First of all, because it's Freeman, and I think he plays dip diplomatic characters very well, because Martin Freeman's awesome. But second of all, because it makes him a perfect fit for this kind of a thing, to be, in many ways, the first point man of this idea of foreign interaction. Remember, other than Claw and the occasional other exemption that we don't even know about, Freeman, that is to say Ross, that is to say Everett Ross, Agent Ross, is one of the first people to ever even know the truth of Wakanda. And that's going to make him very valuable and important going forward when Wakanda opens its borders, so to speak. It also... It's interesting because it makes him in total contrast, the exact opposite of the other Ross, Thunderbolt Ross. Thunderbolt Ross would be like, listen, we're going to tell you what to do, and you're going to do it, and you're going to like it. Whereas this Ross would be like, okay, look, I'm not confirming or denying anything, but there might be a guy here. We do need to take him in, but afterwards, let's talk, let's work something out. It's, a, it, it, it's the exact opposite approach. And funnily enough, I tend to like this Ross better. Go figure. Anyways. <clears throat> so... <laughs> I love how the first, the second, actually, the second thing Okoye does is she ditches the damn wig. Like, I get this thing off the <laughs> I love that. And what they do is they do a series of long shots. Now, what I mean by that is too commonly fight scenes or action scenes are shot, 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 shot. Each one of those, each time I said that word being an edit, right? Here it's more like shot. Shot! And, you know, establishing several seconds of, a, of a, an established scene before moving on, which I'm in huge favor of. I mean, I've been kind of anti-rapid-fire editing for, God, most of my career at this point. All of my career. <laughs> like, the last 15, 20 years, I've been like, come on, can we stop doing this? But it also shows a lot more care and craft being put into it, and it helps set up the big one at 47 minutes and 30 seconds to 48 minutes and... Actually, about 27 seconds. So it's a little under a minute. Just under one solid minute of one shot of Okoye, and then she goes down, and then there's the fight between T'Challa and Nakia's down there, and then, oh god, he has to get up, and he, so he goes up after Claw, and then Claw pulls out the gun, and then he shoots, but then it explodes. It's like, oh my god, I made it rain! And then he runs off. I love that shot. I'm sorry for gushing so much. It's actually possible that it's actually three shots. I was paying... I actually. I rewound the scene and watched it again, which if you know anything about my schedule, you can see how insane it is that I would actually rewatch a scene just for this. I know it's just a minute, but I never do that. It was a really, really good scene. It might be a trick extended shot, which, which uh, films will pull occasionally. I'm not actually sure. I couldn't find out. Because you can notice moments where they could have done an edit. Okoye starts fighting up in the balcony, and the camera goes down, and as it's going down, it passes in front of a, a, a pillar. And as it, it passes really close, which would be a good time to do an edit. So that could have been one shot. And then all the stuff at the ground level is the one shot. And then the jump up to the second level could have been the third shot. I'm not sure. It could all have just been one un an uninterrupted shot. But whether it was a fake uninterrupted shot or a real one, they're both very hard to pull off. And they're both awesome. And I loved it. Which brings me to Claw. Now,
I, I also mentioned here, nice throw. I've been trying to put a finger on how, why I like Claw so much, other than the competency, the deadliness, the fact that he's just so on top of everything. He almost comes across as the Joker, right? And I'm just, I'm sitting here like, that doesn't, that's not quite right though. That's not quite right. I, I gotta figure out what, what is about this guy. Meanwhile, he, she, God, that, that throw with that spear was so amazing. And they have a vibranium car which is basically shattered by the shot. Thankfully, Agent Ross has been keeping up because he's willing to work with us instead of against us. T'Challa goes for the wheels and hey, it works out. And then we see the first conflict between Warrior and King. There's only really two. But this is the first time he realizes that as Warrior, he wants to just rip Claw in half right there on the spot. And as King, he shouldn't. This then leads to, you know, the, the interrogation scene. And Claw is like, oh my god, you don't understand how big this is, and blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, okay, whatever. <clears throat> Talks his way around them, kind of jokes a little bit. Comes across as a little bit manic. <sighs> then the van shows up to rescue them, which includes Eric. Why, uh, why don't they go chasing after the van? They've got plenty of cars around here. And they could just... No, guys, it's, it's a van. They're not exactly... Okay, whatever. So we're not chasing him. I know what you're thinking. The reason they don't chase him is because they have to save Agent Ross. The problem is the film doesn't really make that clear. If that had been the choice, that would be awesome. If Okoye was like, we need to go get Claw, and he decides to try and save Agent Ross, the man who just saved Nakia, as then that's his choice, that would have been great. Instead, it's just kind of, we just let the van go, and now we have to save Agent Ross. This is, of course, the second conflict of the warrior versus the king. And what I love most is when Okoye is disagreeing with this, she doesn't portray Ross as the enemy. Because he's not. You know what he is? An agent of a foreign power. Just like she is an agent of a power. And she understands full well what it means to follow your duty, regardless of your personal feelings or morality. It's actually a very subtle foreshadowing for where her arc is going to go in the future. So she treats it very neutrally. He has a job, and he's going to tell on us because it's his duty to do so. Just like I would. It is T'Challa who chooses the individual perspective and says, I cannot let this man die. He's a good man, and he's helped us more than once, and he's an ally. I'm not letting him die just to keep our foreign secrets. So he choose this time. The previous time he chose the king. This time he chooses the warrior. Now, this is when Claw, who you notice he was ready for the betrayal like that, right? This is what I mean by him always being on top of things. Yeah, as soon as Eric pulls the gun on the other guy, Claw already has. His gun on his his hostage, like, nope, nope, we're going to kill her. And, of course, Eric doesn't give a damn about her, because he's a psychopath. I've already commented on this. This kid's messed up. Not that I blame him. And I finally was able to kind of put a finger on what I like so much about Claw. Because he is someone who is really, really good at his job, and completely casual about it. And as I started thinking about I'm sure there are other examples of fictional characters like that, but I couldn't really put a finger on any. Not off the top of my head. He's like if Batman was just kind of casually Han Soloing around the entire time. Like, oh yeah, sure, whatever. And he's completely on top of everything constantly, right? It's, it's the dichotomy of it that I think worked. And of course, Circus's performance. Even the creators of the film regretted killing him, by the way. I just feel like pointing that out. They wanted to keep him alive, but they were like, ah, and they just couldn't make it work in the script, and they're like, whatever. Whatever, let's just, let's just do it. Let's get rid of him. This is when we get the second part of the backstory for Eric, and more of the info on what happened between Zuri, and yeah, it's not exactly pleasant. And it's also interesting because it's trying to characterize the villain. Now... There's an old standing joke that this is the first villain with characterization in the MCU other than Loki. Allow me to professionally disagree. I think they've actually done a decent job of characterizing most of the villains I've been discussing for the Phase 3 stuff. Zemo? Eh, not quite so much. 
But I do have to admit, I really liked what they did, did with Tombs over in Spider-Man. And I really like what they did with Ego over in Guardians of the Galaxy. I feel like I covered another film recently. Strange, right. Okay, they didn't establish any villains in Strange. I'll give you that one. <laughs> but my point is, I feel like this is more of a recurring trend rather than it is beginning with Killmonger. Don't mistake me. He's still an interesting villain, and I'm glad they're actually trying to actually flesh out their villains, and that'll pay off in a big way in Infinity War. But having him have this backstory, it's interesting because he is a psychopath. I keep saying that. He kills without hesitation and without cause just because. Because it'll push him further where he needs to go. He doesn't care. This is a truly immoral person. But you can see where he's coming from. You can see why he's the way he is. You can see why he's so driven. Anyways. <clears throat> so, there's this nice little scene, by the way, where Agent Ross and Shuri kind of bond. Now, that's actually a good part, because she calls him a colonizer, and is very dismissive of him at first. And he's just like, okay, I'll just shush then. And he walks over to the window, and then he's just... And he looks at it, and he's just awe-struck by it. And that catches her attention. And so she's like, oh, you know, she's kind of paying attention. And then he's like, how do you... Magnets, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I designed that. Oh, really? And did you make this? Yeah. And there's like this weird bonding moment between the two over his amazement at her work and her gushing about it, too. It's just a nice little moment and a nice little connecting point there. I just wanted to comment on it because I like Shuri a lot. <laughs> we also get a little bit of foreshadowing that Vibranium can actually be deactivated. In fact, it can be deactivated specifically by something that is sonically pushed forward. That hasn't really come up outside of this film, but it's interesting to keep in mind, because that might come up in the future. Anywho, <clears throat> so, this is then when, you know, Claw is dragged in, and he's bought forward by bad guy. I still don't remember his name, I don't care. He's, I'm sorry, he's one of the weaker parts of the story. I get they were going for the political infrastructure thing, but he's just a warmonger. And, and there's nothing else to him. There's nothing interesting about him. He's a warmonger who wants revenge. And he is such a one-note character that he, he shows up as flat compared to Shuri and Nakia and Agent Ross and T'Challa and Ramonda and Okoye and... Right? Anyways, bad guy backs Eric. And now we have the beginnings of some kind of internecine conflict. But finally, he's like, okay, sure, I'll take your challenge. Now here's the catch. Eric is basically a better fighter than T'Challa, mostly because of experience and the fact that he's aiming to kill. You'll notice T'Challa bests... I, I shouldn't even put that in quote-unquote. He actually does defeat Eric once, right? Pretty far in the, the beginning of the fight. And he demands that Eric yields. And that, that, that was his mistake. Because then Eric comes back. Eric never asks for him to yield. Eric just tries to kill him. Yeah. Um, see, that's, that's a problem right there. If T'Challa had just killed him right then and there, which he could have... That would have been the end of it. Don't mistake me. I get why he didn't. Remember, T'Challa is still feeling guilty about all this crap. As he himself said, this monster, Eric, is a monster that they made, and he feels responsible for this. I understand that. Not personally. Obviously, I've never made a monster that I know of. But I do understand that idea and that guilt and that concept of, I have to do something about this, so of course he doesn't kill him, and that nearly costs him his life. Because Eric doesn't show any mercy or hesitation, and then ends up killing... <sighs> yeah. I actually uh, rather like Forrest Whitaker. And uh, they, brought in, they brought in a lot of really good actors and actresses for this one, by the way. I haven't really been saying that before. I already have given tons of praise for Chadwick Boseman, but every single one of these people does a really good job in this one. Forgive me. Uh, the woman who plays Nakia, in, in particular, she's a... She's got some interesting range. I've seen her actually in a lot of things. You you guys might remember her as, I can't remember the name of her name, but the alien with the doggles in both Episode 7 and Episode 8. And I guess by this point, Episode 9 will have come out. As of me recording this, it is not, so I don't know if she's in that. She's a good actress, is what I'm trying to say. So Zuri dies. Poor Zuri. This, of course, leads to the immediate problem. Congratulations, uh, you now have a violent warrior usurper king. 
And that's a problem in a normal country. You want to do that in frickin' Wakanda? <laughs> I guess that's bad. That's all kinds of bad. History will tell you a bajillion times over. That's bad. That can only lead to one thing. Um, Alexander the Great or a lot of blood. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to imply those were mutually exclusive. <clears throat> this then leads to a really great scene. Okoye... I, I keep gushing about her. She's, she's so... Um, <laughs> she's so awesome. There's this really great bit where she's standing there and Nakia comes in and Okoye just embraces like, oh, God, it's okay. So he's alive. No, I'm sorry. He's not alive. Right, right. He's just... I'm so sorry. Is your mother out? Did your mother get out? Okay, she got out. Thank goodness, thank goodness. Okay, go, go. And Nakia's like, okay, we need to go. And Okoye's like, no, I'm, I'm staying. I have to stay. I'm loyal to that thing. <laughs> I'm loyal to the chair, no matter who sits on it. Nakia's the one who rejoinders, I'm loyal to the country. <laughs> and Nakia leaves. And Okoye's left there going, <sighs> you can tell she doesn't like this one bit. But just like she referenced earlier, it doesn't matter if she likes it, doesn't matter if she chooses it, she has to do her duty. Just like she assumed Agent Ross would, right? So, you know, okay, I will do this. This then leads to uh, Killmonger, I'm going to call him that for this one scene, being put into the sand and connecting to the astral dream or being hallucinated, whatever the hell happens, we already talked about that. And he sees his dad, and this scene, oh, I'm going to go ahead and admit, this scene catches me. Because it's, like, it's not typically grief strike. It's not, it's not the kind of thing that's supposed to pull at your heartstrings. It's just tragic. You'll notice the kid never cries. It's when he's the adult. It's when he's played by Michael Jordan, that, or Michael B. Jordan. That's when he cries. This is, a circumstance of a broken and bad world. And and something that's been perpetuated on, on many sides for way too long. And you can see how much it's just destroyed these two people and their lives and the future they could have had. I like to think that at least once Eric would have taken time out to go and see the sunrise. But given the timeline of events, it's actually entirely possible he never did. Not until the end. I mean, that's a sunset, but you get my point. So again, this is doing something that I love, that fiction doesn't do enough of. Portrays a complete monster with added depth to them. Just because they're very evil does not mean they have to be one-dimensional. Now, it is difficult to characterize someone who is that evil. My favorite go-to example of this is actually Gul'dan, from, World, uh, from the alternate Gul'dan over in World of Warcraft. They did a lot of work to characterize him, and he was a monster. And they do the same thing here with Eric. They never try to portray him as a good person at all. Because he's not. But they do try to portray him as a person. And that's why he sticks that in his, his actor, because again, he's a really good actor. Anyways. <clears throat> so. He orders the flowers burnt. Notice he took the gold suit, by the way. It's always bothered me, this idea of how easy it is for people in temporary power to destroy permanent things. I don't have a term for that. It's something that's historically happened uh, more times than we know, because every time it happened and we don't have a record of it, we never knew it existed. You ever wonder how much history we have permanently lost because of people like Eric Killmonger? I'm not even joking about that. This is where all the, the flowers are. Okay, burn them. Burn them. Don't need those. Don't need those. Got to make sure there's no one after me. Thankfully, they do save one, which means our Black Panther gets to remain Black Panther, so that's cute. I have a note here. Do you think this is about revolution? Or do you think this is about the Wakandan Empire? He says enough things on both sides, and obviously bad guy certainly supports the Wakandan Empire idea. You know, conquer or be conquered. What do you guys think? I'm actually quite curious, because I've heard a lot of debate and a lot of discussion on this exact point. Personally, and this is just my thoughts, I honestly don't think Mr. Eric Killmonger was thinking more than a year ahead. I think he really was just thinking, screw it, let it all burn. 
Wakanda will be the one place that is untouched, and we're going to attack and destabilize and destroy everywhere else simultaneously, because screw them. Now, this is a bloody subtle touch, and it's something that's amusing because it it's something the movie doesn't even call attention to. But he's consumed by vengeance. You remember, the thing that was such a big arc in Civil War. The thing that T'Challa spent all of Civil War overcoming the need for, growing out of vengeance. It's one of the reasons why he's able to take such a stance against Eric in this film. Because he's already been there, and he's already done that. So, I like M'Baku. He's funny. We needed a little bit of levity here, other than Shuri. And uh, I like I like how they portray him. He's a good example of a neutral character. He's not good, he's not evil. He's just, come on, I'm another king of another country. What do you want from me? Lord, excuse me. Lord of his tribe, basically. The one and only thing I don't like about him, and it is only the one thing, is he says, we will not help you. That's stupid. Of course you'll help them, and you'll show up at the last minute, and you do, and it ends up saving the day. Don't do that, movie. Don't. By the way, I do want to point something out. One thing many people have pointed out, including me, is that this film does follow your typical MCU structure, and it does. We've got an origin story, we've got a villain tied into the origin story, uh, we've got a big climactic finale with a army, I'll get back to that in a second. We've got the last minute sa salvation from the cavalry, and we've got a big fight against someone who has the same power set, and in fact is wearing such a similar suit that in some scenes it's actually hard to tell them apart. Yeah, no, that's that's an MCU final act. Straight up copy-paste. It's still good. Could be better, but it is still good. And I say that because there's nothing wrong with cliches. And I like to prove that every now and again. So, proof. But like I said, I do think the we will not help you thing was unnecessary. You could have just cut that out entirely. Like, seriously, you could have cut him asking for help out entirely. That would be easy. Instead, they're like, no, we will not help you. We're here to help you. <sighs> Anyways. <clears throat> so, while he's being resurrected, basically, T'Challa... T'Challa stands up to his father. T'Challa yells at his father and all his fathers and says, you were wrong. What you did was wrong. What you have been doing is wrong. And he's right. Because the thing about being a king, the thing about taking the macroscopic perspective is you almost universally will do things that are ethically and morally wrong because of the political side of things. Because you're thinking in terms of nations and borders and thousands. So you do wrong. And now, of course, he is refusing to continue doing wrong, but he, unlike Eric, is not consumed by vengeance anymore. And he, unlike both uh, Nakia and bad guy understand that there are other options. That there are ways to do things to help that don't involve going to an extreme. Now this is so obvious it kind of bothers me a little. Because it is obvious. Like they're like, oh we must do this massive extreme. No, we must do this massive extreme. And I'm just sitting here like but there's a couple miles in between here. Kilometers if you prefer. You know. Parsecs? I don't know. There's a lot of space is what I'm trying to say. In the final battle, I mentioned the ensemble thing. First, I want to say the Civil War is kind of dumb. Mostly because of its scale. I, I hate to complain, but this is like three platoons fighting. You know, not even a full company of troops. Total. Of all of the combatants. It's a cool fight scene. But I don't like how this is portrayed as some big Civil War moment. Instead, this is portrayed as a skirmish, and the only reason it falls is because the leaders happen to be on the battlefield at the time. Rule number one, don't lead from the front. That being said, that being said, I do like how everyone has their role to play in it, right? We've got Shuri, who obviously is providing the tech, but also manages to uh, deal with Killmonger. We've got Nakia who, in addition to disarming Killmonger, actually is one of the main combatants in the main force. We've got Ross. He's the one piloting the ship to get it and to, to, to make sure that those shipments don't get out. We've got T'Challa himself. He's got to take on Eric at the end. We've got Ramonda. Oh, she's not here, actually, for this one. Sorry. We've got Okoye. Now, this is my favorite one. I, I saved her for last, because everyone else is contributing to the fight in some way. Oh, and, of course, M'Baku, who is the cavalry. 
But Okoye, <laughs> God, I love Okoye, because what happens is she concludes her arc. It's the moment when he ref he breaks from tradition that she turns on him. Now, that makes perfect sense. Not because he's wrong. That's not why she does it. She does it because he's no longer legally the king. She's loyal to who sits on the throne, and legally, as of the moment of him denying the trial, no one's sitting on that throne. So the moment he rejects the trial, congratulations, you just lost your entire military. Yay! One of the things, I could talk a lot about this, all I'm going to say real quick, is one of the things I learned when crafting governments and fiction is that uh, there has to be a source of power. It's usually presumed it's usually something that isn't literal. It's not like there's a, you know, the, the, the carrots of power or whatever. No, although that would be really cool. No, it's, it's like the power comes from, uh, you know, manifest destiny or the power comes from the divinity of God or the power comes from the writ of the people or the power comes from the representation of the states or whatever. There's some source, some presumed source of right to rule. And in this case, it's, the the challenge and the nature of how that works and the tribes presenting and backing right all of the tribes have the right to interrupt the challenge or to 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 in, to inflict the challenge basically and say no i want to be in charge just like umbaku did he had that right legally the moment you say no i refuse your right to challenge or you say no this is invalid i already beat this you are invalidating your right to rule bam illegal that's when she can finally turn on him. So it's not so much that her character has finished its arc, it's more like she's finally allowed to do what she's wanted to do this entire time, which is probably why she just goes nuts on him. And it's really enjoyable to watch. Of course, she can't beat him. No, she just beats the entire war. <laughs> There's this wonderful bit where bad guy char is charging, I think, Mbaku, with, a, with one of the battle rhinos. And Okoye just gets in the way. Doesn't get a weapon out. Doesn't doesn't throw up an energy shield, which the cloak shields are really cool, by the way. No, she just stands there. Of course she does. Because the rhino comes up and licks her. Why would the rhino attack her? She's a friendly. Think about it. She's helped raise that rhino. She's been there and cared for him and probably fed him. Of course he walks up, oh, it's you! <sighs> so that, of course, completely disarms bad guy. And then bad guy gets off and she's like, yeah, so I'll kill you. <laughs> if you don't stand down. This is the conclusion of her arc. Choosing her loyalty to her people rather than the loyalty to the individual. And, at the same time, choosing her loyalty to an individual over the loyalty to herself. In short, she shows that she is a dutiful soldier and general and a good person at the same time. Which, boy, that's hard to pull off. And she's the one who stops the war, because she gets him to disarm, which gets the entire border tribe to disarm, which ends the fighting. Then, you know, we go back to the main villain fighting the main hero, now that the political dispute has been settled by Okoya, because she's fucking awesome! We... <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I, like, I hate to gush, but she really is such an awesome character. I hope she has a much bigger role in two. Anyways. Um... T'Challa, as I already said, T'Challa's learned. T'Challa's learned about vengeance. So he beats Eric, drags him up, lets him watch the sunset. <sighs> this leads to them reaching out. Uh, literally, they start an outreach program in uh, in Oakland. God, Oakland of all places. I, I used to live uh, pretty much like right down the road from Oakland, if you're wondering. This is a while ago, obviously. Uh, sort of been uh, early 90s. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much has changed in the last 20, 30 years. How long has it been at this point? Whatever. It doesn't matter. What does matter is this is... I've talked before about how he's a different take on the Bruce Wayne concept. This is kind of going in that direction. He's using his wealth and influence as king, the backing of the Wakandan nation, to try and reach out and help people politically and financially not just run up and beat villains, you know, to a pulp with his fists. And that's part of why I keep comparing him positively to Batman. Not not the same direction, because Batman isn't superhuman and has tons of gadgets, and of course, uh, it's he's all about prep. I'm prepared for every situation. This guy, he's far more reactive and directive. He is superhuman, and he's far more open 
about who and what he is. Because everyone knows who the king of Wakanda is, right? So he's, he puts Shuri in charge of this, and they start doing that. It's, it's this nice thing. And, of course, he talks in front of the UN. We're going to open our borders. We're going to share our technology. I love how it's France is the country that's like, what the hell do you have to offer us? Come on, man. This then leads us, well, not directly, but indirectly into Infinity War. Because now, Wakanda has opened their borders and their acknowledgement to the world. Now, the world's going to take a while to get adjusted to that. This is a huge political sea change. It really is. Or it would be under normal circumstances. This would be a massive change to the status quo and a complete alteration. Countries would be falling over themselves to make sure that they have the best trade agreements and best alliances with Wakanda because they want to be on that side as quickly and early as possible to be able to push off against their political rivals. I would be too, even if I was some dirt-poor nobody country. I'd be reaching out to Wakanda first step. Hey! Right? Anybody would. But we do know with total certainty, thanks to the advantage of hindsight, that one of the groups that immediately reached out was Stark Industries. Now that's important, because given a lot of what happens in what is to come, it is very likely that the defense of Earth would not have gone as well if Wakanda had not opened its borders. So this is another piece moved into place for Infinity War. I'm going to say one other thing here. So, spoilers for Infinity War if you haven't seen it, okay? Spoilers, 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 spoilers. So, the five years, right? If not for that, if not for... There's a really good chance that this sea change would have messed up the world. And I mean that sincerely. This is such a volatile political situation. I'm not even sure what to make of this. You think the Sokovia Accords were bad. This changes everything. And pe <coughs> people who otherwise are more peaceful or cooperative nations would be willing to risk warfare or open conflict with each other or with Wakanda just to get their hands on something like this. This is a big deal. Here's the thing. Because of the snap, because of the decimation, as they call it in universe, that never got a chance to come to fruition. Politics suddenly took a massive backseat because... The world ended, <laughs> or near enough to it. And so they were spared that. <coughs> Excuse me. It'll be very interesting to see how this all follows through whenever Black Panther 2 finally comes out. I'm going to chop off before I really start getting into a coughing fit. I hope you've enjoyed, guys. I'll see you next time.